We've been continuing in a series called Expectancy, and we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going at a rather slow pace, and the desire is that we spend time and just let God's Word transform us um, and let His Word bring transformation. This past summer, I had the opportunity um, with my family. We had slipped away for a couple of days, and just like many of you, just to take some vacation time away. And while we were away, uh, the place that we, were, we had, we were staying at, um, just had on one of the channels, they were showing a special on Michael Jordan. Now, I grew up a, a big fan of basketball, a big fan of Michael Jordan, still a big fan of Michael Jordan today. So anytime I see something on TV that has Michael Jordan on it, I'm drawn to watch it. So uh, my family and I, me and my boys and a couple of my girls were watching this special. And it wasn't so much, because I've seen a lot of the different specials and the different shows, and it wasn't so much on his basketball days and his basketball career, but it was about some changes. And, and so there was a time in his life when he retired from basketball and tried to play professional baseball and played for some minor league teams. And it was kind of focusing on that transition and that phase in his life and just what he was going through as well as a time where his father was, was murdered and, and just changes in his life. But as they were, they were interviewing and, and interacting with different people who had known him for many years, they went to his hometown. They went to where he had grown up. And as they were there in his hometown, uh, they began to talk to some of his neighbors from some of his childhood friends. And as they're there in his hometown, I remember them talking specifically to to one individual, and they're just talking with him and interacting with him and talking about just how great Michael Jordan had become and all these things. And the person who knew him and, and really knew him best, had, he made this statement, and he said, to me, Michael will always be Michael. He'll never be anything more than Michael. It's, it's who I know him to be. I don't view him as the superstar. I don't view him as this larger-than-life figure, this person that you can't interact with. He's, to me, he's, he'll always be Michael. And they went to his hometown, and in his hometown, Michael is Michael. And that, in a sense, is what we see happening in the story we're about to read when we look at the story of Jesus in Mark chapter 6. Once you look there with me, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And isn't this the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. The story we've just read is rather interesting, and it's really we see Jesus getting uh, received, much like I shared with you this individual that knew Michael Jordan. He said, it'll always be Michael to me. And we see when Jesus arrives in his hometown that they're familiar with him. They're familiar with Jesus so much so that they leave no room for there to be faith for the possibility of anything more. In fact, when, when you read the story we've just read, when you read that word hometown in verse 1, it says Jesus went left there and went to his hometown. When we read the word hometown, then we need to think two words. We need to think familiar and we need to think routine. Things were familiar and people were in their routine. And to Jesus, he was nothing new to them. There was no expectancy. There was no desire. In fact, when I look at this story and the approach that this town has towards Jesus, 
I think what's not written in this story is just as revealing as what is written. If you look at the previous stories and the previous encounters that Jesus has had, he's been traveling back and forth with his disciples to two different sides of this lake. And in each place you see he's met by a crowd. He's met by just this large mass of people, so much so that in some places he hasn't been able to sleep. He hasn't been able to eat. There's a time where the disciples, in a sense, take charge of him and say, we need to get you out of here. You need to get some rest. But we see in this story, there's no crowd waiting for Jesus. In fact, it would appear that the only time Jesus finally has an opportunity to speak is when, it's, when it comes to the Sabbath and he's in the synagogue. In other places, people had made space for Jesus to teach, space for him to be able to instruct them and to, to speak out of God's word, to speak out of his truth. And it would seem that the first opportunity Jesus is even given to speak is when the Sabbath finally comes around and people are gathered in the synagogue. So I think the story says much with what's not written, just as much as what is written. And it's at this point when Jesus begins to teach and begins to, to instruct this group of people, his hometown, that we begin to get a glimpse of where they're at. And verse 3 really gives us a picture of what's happening in their heart. Look at verse 3 again. It says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Since they were turned away, they took offense at him. They could not leave room in their mind for the possibility of Jesus to do anything more or be anything more than what they had already arrived at, a predetermined conclusion of who he was. They said, he's just the carpenter. He's just so-and-so's brother, just so-and-so's sister, just so-and-so's son. How could he possibly have this type of wisdom and insight and understanding and be able to do many things? But I want you to notice something else. Not only this lack of openness and expectancy and this lack of faith in their hearts, but look in verse 5, verses 5 and 6 again. It says, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. It says he could not do any miracles there. It would appear that the posture of these people's hearts, the lack of faith, the lack of expectancy, the lack of desire, the lack of worship, the lack of, of wanting really anything from Jesus, both restricted and resisted the work of Jesus. You might say, how does it restrict and resist him? Well, in verse 5, it says he could not. It doesn't say he would not. It says he could not do anything there. It's a big difference between could not and would not. It speaks to his desire to be able to minister, his desire to bring freedom, his desire to bring life, his desire to bring hope. But there's a lack of expectancy, there's a lack of faith, there's a lack of desire. And so they're resisting him. Not only is it resisting him, but it's restricting him. It says that he's not able to perform any miracles there. And you might look at this and you might think for just a moment, Jesus is the Son of God. We see that declared again and again through the Gospels. The Gospel of Mark is, is so, so tied on everything it's sharing because the focus is Jesus, revealing Jesus, revealing who he is. You might say, how can someone possibly resist or restrict his power from ministering, from bringing them freedom and bringing them life? In the story, it seems that they're able to resist him and bo both resist him and restrict him simply by not coming. They didn't come. They didn't come expecting. They didn't come at all. The only ones that did come, we see in the story, they came and it says that they were healed. Verse 5 says that, that a few sick people came and, if, and they were healed. But what I find, what else I find rather interesting is with this is that to them, Jesus was routine. 
Jesus was nothing new, was nothing out of the ordinary. It was everything that they were familiar with. But look in verse, verse 6 one more time. It says, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Just the first part of verse 6. He was amazed at their lack of faith. When you read through the gospel accounts, whether it be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll find that the word amazed is often used with Jesus, but only twice is it used describing him towards other people. Many people come and they're amazed at his power. They're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his ability. In Mark chapter 1, they're amazed not only at his ability to teach, but the authority with which he teaches. But only twice in all of Scripture is Jesus being, is ever described as being amazed. One is found in Luke chapter 7, and it's the story where Jesus is walking through the crowds, and as he's walking through the crowds with his disciples, there's a Roman centurion, a Roman commander, who sends a servant from his house. He has a servant who is sick. He has someone in his house who's sick, and so he sends a messenger to Jesus. And he sends this messenger to Jesus, and he says, would you come? My, my master needs you. He needs you to bring healing to the home, to bring healing to this individual. And so Jesus begins to go. And as Jesus is going, the, somehow this Roman commander gets word that Jesus is coming to his house, and so he sends a second messenger. And the second messenger gets to Jesus in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, and he, says, he gets to Jesus, and he says, my commander has, has sent a second message to you. And his message is, Jesus, don't come into my house. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house, or else I would have come to you myself. I'm not even worthy enough to appear before you. And so he says to, he says to Jesus, he says, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He says, just speak the word. I have such faith and expectancy in the ability of what you might be able, what you can do in this. You don't have to physically come step in my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Luke chapter 7 verse 9 says this. It says, Jesus was amazed at his faith. Jesus was amazed at the faith that this man demonstrated. In fact, he references it and says, not in all of Israel is there such great faith as this. So that's the, that's one of the two times that Jesus is being, told, as being described as being amazed. One is that great faith. And the second one is here in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. He was amazed at their lack of faith. It would appear that there are only two things that amaze Jesus. One is great faith, and the other is a lack of faith, an absence of faith. And we see that in the story. Their lack of faith ultimately restricted what Jesus could possibly do in their lives. One author that I was reading is just reading and studying different things when it comes to this topic. He wrote and he said, miracles don't come from a negative environment. Miracles do not come from a negative environment. They don't come from an absence of faith. That faith is the avenue, it's, it's the highway in which many miracles take place that, that they travel through because our lives are open, there's an expectancy, there's a hunger, there's a desire for God to do something. When there's no faith, there's no expectancy, there's no desire, there's no receptivity to it. Their lack of faith was seen in their lack of expectancy. They didn't expect Jesus to do anything or be anything other than what they had already become familiar with and with what they were already routine with. They weren't open or receptive to anything different. Their lack of faith restricted what God could do in their lives. When it comes to our faith, the Bible defines faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It defines faith as being confident of what we hope for, and it describes it as the assurance of what we don't yet see. One way that I've mentioned faith to you before and I have written in my Bible is that faith is trusting in advance that which only makes sense in reverse. 
It's trusting in advance that which only makes sense in reverse. And in Hebrews, it goes on to tell us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, without faith in our lives, that it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to be positioned in a, in a life that's pleasing to God because faith is the very essence of, of our faith in Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says to fix your thoughts on Jesus, the author, the beginner of our faith, the perfecter, the shaper, the completer of our faith. That is so crucial in our relationship with God. And as I think about this and you look through Scripture, you'll see a number of, of ways to think about faith. But I wanted to give you what I believe is a good working definition of faith for us this morning. Faith is expectancy for the potential of what God's consistently revealed nature can do in and through our lives. Faith is expectancy for the potential of what God's consistently revealed nature can do, can do in and through our lives. It's expectancy in what God can do. It's an expectancy in his nature and who he is and what he's capable of. When it comes to our lives and the faith or the expectancy that we live with or that we fail to live with, I believe that our attitude and understanding of worship and its role in our lives has a significant part in its continued formation and development. When you look in the story, you'll see that there's no worship of Jesus. There's no receptivity to him. There's no honoring his presence. And it's revealed in their lack of faith. So I truly believe that our attitude and understanding of worship is crucial and has a significant part in the continued formation and development in our lives. So what I would like to do is use the remaining portion of our time this morning to talk a little bit about worship and to talk about how it's significant in this faith formation in our lives. And so I've invited Pastor Kyle to come, and he's going to join me uh, this morning. And we're just going to have, I guess, kind of, you could say, a conversation, just talk about worship, to talk about it, to define it a little bit more. Um, and so you're already here, but why don't you welcome him as he comes? Well, last week you had, we had the chance to hear from uh, both Pastor Paul and Pastor David, as well as Eric and Melissa Golden when it comes to our the back-to-school service and a chance to hear from each of them. So it's nice to be able to have your voice in this morning as well. And in a matter of two weeks, you'll get a chance to hear from each one on the pastoral team. But you've heard us talking right now about faith and about worship and how worship really is um, so significant. It's so, so formative, I believe, in helping shape and develop our faith. So I think probably the best place to start would be, what is worship? It's a, it's a simple, it seems like a simple word, but it, it's really a lot. And, and thinking through what you were just talking about, how the, the people from Jesus' hometown were really familiar with him, but they really didn't know him. If they would have known who he was, I think they would have had a different they would have received him better true. because simply worship is responding to God. First uh, John four nineteen says we love because God loved us first. We worship because he loved us first. As God reveals himself, we naturally just respond to who he is. When you get to see more of God's character and love and who he is, you're going to naturally be in awe of who, of who he is, which, which just draws out a response. That's true. Um, different, uh, the, 
So the more we see of God's character, the more we see he's doing in our lives, in the church, the more we see how he loves us, the more we're going to worship. Different uh, synonyms that mean the same as worship would be to love, adore, admire, celebrate, glorify, revere, and honor. True worship is more of a verb than a noun. We oftentimes think in in church circles, well, we're going to worship, or we call this gathering worship. But true worship isn't gathering. It's, It's more of a verb. It's an action. We're going to be worshiping. So with that, you know, we, um, we're talking, as you talk about that and you define worship, I think it's very easy, especially in our culture, when we think about church, we think about, uh, we, I think one of the phrases we use when we come to church is we say we're going to a worship service, those type of things. But with what you've just talked about, um, when we think of worship as being a specific song that plays or a specific place we go to or even a specific part of the service, something that just happened, with what you just defined as worship, um, it really expands that to be so much more. Absolutely. Can you, can you talk about that yes. a little bit for us? Worship is more than music. Uh, I personally love music, and I think it's a great, great avenue, great vehicle. But worship needs to, it's more of making choices that say, in everything I do, I want to honor God. So worship is going to extend beyond these doors, here in this room, beyond this building. It's, it's going to encompass everything. Worship can, should encompass everything we do. It's a mindset that knows that God is good and recognizes he is moving in our lives. It's a mindset of worship is also childlike. I, I really love this. When, we, when you are a parent of a little child, um, you think, they think you are awesome and can do anything. Um, they know you will take care of them. They literally don't spend any time thinking otherwise. Um, that's the expectancy that we can have towards God, and that, that is worship. That's good. So as you define worship that, and I, earlier you said that worship is far more of a verb, far less of a noun, um, that we can be sitting in this room, you're singing songs, the worship team's up here, words are on the screen, and we're in, engaged in worship, but we can actually not be worshiping. That is, that is also true. Um, worship, again, is honoring God in all we do. So the goal is that all we do honors God. One of our core values here is we worship in all we say, all we do, and all we are. So that's certainly going to go beyond the time that we spend singing or being here together in a worship service. That's true. Um, when we were talking earlier this week, we, we took some time in the office just talking about this and talking about uh, the chance just to, to, I guess, have this conversation in front of you. And one of the statements that you said is you said, we're all worshipers. We're all worshipers. Can you can maybe revisit that and, and expand that a little bit more? It's, I think it's easy to think that we're either worshiping or we're not. But God created us to worship. We are all worshipers. So the question is not if we worship. The question is what we worship. And... That's kind of a, a thing that I don't think we think about or realize in our lives that um, 
that in, uh, in everything we do and um, in different moments of life is, is worship. It's just what. That's true. One of the things when we were talking about this specifically um, in office, we were talking about the Ten Commandments. And uh, if you look at them in Exodus chapter 20, when you look in the first few commandments, it talks about not having any other gods before God. Not, uh, and then he begins to talk about crafting these idols. And one of the things that we talked about that fits so much with what you've just said is that in a sense, what, what the Ten Commandments reveal is we are hardwired to worship. Mm-hmm. We're, we're hardwired to worship something. And as you've said, the question is not if we will worship. It's what, we're, what, what will we worship? What do we allow to occupy, occupy that primary place uh, in our hearts? Um, and I think out of that, when we, when we were really talking about in the Old Testament and the worshiping and, and even the Ten Commandments about not carving out an idol or things, when we read about that in the Bible... There's a lot of examples of worship, and a lot of it is really wrong worship because they're worshiping idols and statues and things. Um, how do you see that as a parallel into our world today? Because as I sit here and I, we're talking about worship and that we'll always worship something, it's very easy to read to the Old Testament and say, well, I'm not going home and I'm not necessarily having a carved out of stone or out of woods, a little statue or something that I'm about to, but yet there's still relevance to that in our, our world and our culture today. Yes, Absolutely. We use, again, I, I, I agree, you can read the Old Testament, you can read about idols and, and Moses and, and uh, the Israelites crafting this golden calf, and you're like, it's easy to read that and just separate yourself from that and think, well, I'm not making any idols, I'm not bowing down to anything man created. But it's not as obvious, but, but you still can. Um, so they're just not little statues. Anything, anything you choose to worship instead of God is an idol. There are things, so those things that we truly love, those things that can consume our thoughts and our time, and often those things aren't bad. They don't have to be bad. But if we give them a place above where, where God's supposed to have the highest place, that's an idol something that we love and we think about and consumed by more than we are our Savior. That's true. Something that um, I've thought of before for my own life that to really, I think, maybe do a, an idol check in our hearts is what are the things that I lie awake at night thinking about and what are the things that first take my time in the morning? Um, I think that would be a good revealer of where we bow and yeah. what, what we, we worship. Would, yeah. would you agree? Absolutely. You, different things like health and fitness can be an idol. Um, our entertainment choices can be an idol. Um, relationships, good relationships, our spouse, our kids can all be idols. They can take God's place in our heart. That's true. That's true. Um, as we, we're talking about worship, we're talking about Old Testament worship, and as you just talked about, um, idol worship in the Old Testament and its relevance into our lives today. Um, something else that's specific in those stories is that the worshipers always brought a sacrifice to the worship in some way. They always came with something. We see that in the New Testament when it comes to uh, people in the temple. They'd come and they'd present something. Um, can you talk about what a sacrifice looks like today? So if we're all still worshipers, and you've already addressed the, the idol part or what we worship, but mm-hmm. what does the sacrifice look like today? Absolutely. Um, God, in the Old Testament, required the Israelites to bring a sacrifice. It was a part of 
um, covering sins, using that big word atonement, you know, covering, covering sins. The good news is we don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> we don't, we're not required to bring animals with us for sacrifice. Jesus did that on the cross for us. He was, he was that. So the question is, what, what do we bring today? Do we bring anything uh, to our time of worship? And the more I think about this, and uh, the good, um, I, I like this. Actually, I'll go back just a little bit. Um, it's not, we're, the sacrifice just doesn't happen when we show up at church. Um, I like, there's a story um, about King David in Second Samuel. So the end of his life, and uh, God is requiring him to, to bring a sacrifice and go to a certain location and set up a sacrifice. And uh, David and his men arrive, and uh, the, the person who lives there just says, hey, you can have this. You can have the threshing floor. You can have this place. And Oh, and here's some, here's some animals you can make a sacrifice with. And I love this. And David says in Second Samuel 24, 24, I will not give something that cost me nothing. It just, again, just to speaks to the heart of David and how he knew, um, how he knew who God was, that he had this desire to, um, to worship him. So the most important thing we today can bring on Sunday mornings is our heart. True worship happens right here in our hearts. Um, it's, it's kind of easy to think that if I just show up and the words are on the screen, I can just say them, that somehow worship is happening. But worship is a much deeper thing that happens. Worship is work. Worship doesn't just happen because I'm up here leading or whoever is up here singing a song. It's, it's, it's happening here that, that we want to create an atmosphere that it's, that, that's participatory where you can join, but I can't, I can't make you engage your heart. I can invite you to sing, but it's between you and the Lord what is happening in your heart. When you talk about that with your heart, um, I, I mentioned earlier about basketball, loving basketball growing up, and um, I can remember standing in church with my, my best friend at the time, and we played on the basketball team together. We talked basketball. We watched basketball together. Um, usually after church, we get together and go play basketball. And I can remember standing in service in the worship service, the singing's happening, the worship's taking place, and my mind is not in the worship service. It's all about basketball coming later. It's all about what I'm going to do later. And we might even whisper back and forth about basketball later or how I beat him on video game basketball earlier in the morning or something like that because we just like to sleep over. But I think about how my mind was elsewhere even though we were, and it was maybe halfway through or even further through the worship service before I was actually engaged. Um, and you just talked about the importance of our heart. So could you maybe mention one or two things that we can do so that our, when we walk into a corporate worship service, obviously, this is, we've, we've already defined worship is beyond what just happens in this room. What are some basic things we can do in our hearts to have our hearts ready for that moment? Uh, yeah. Um, so, just what I talked about, worship happens, our goal is that worship happens in all we do. So bringing that attitude of worship that you've been cultivating all week is a great, is a great uh, thing to bring with you. Uh, another is Pray. You can pray for church. Pray for what happens here. Pray, pray that what happens even outside of these walls. Um, next, engage your heart in attention and worship. You don't have to wait to the third song, the fourth song, before you engage. 
Um, you, can, you can engage right away, engage before you get here. And I, and I understand that maybe your drive here, you're, you're with your family and you're with other people and you're driving, and that just seems to be the time where everything falls apart. And, and, and it can be difficult. But again, it's just, we're, it's a choice. We're making a choice that, that, uh, that we're going to choose to engage, that, that um, there is something about when we get to be together and where our hearts and, and our attitudes and our desires are all lined up, there's something that just happens in that moment. And, and one other thing before we move on to the next thing is another thing that we can do is serve is another thing that we can worship. Um, worship again, worship doesn't happen in this room. Um, we have our, our kids that are meeting, or older kids and our young kids. You can jump in that serving, being with the kids, even if you're not in this space. That is also another way to help engage our hearts in worship. That's true. So as we're talking about, uh, we're talking about Jesus arriving in his hometown, a lack of expectancy, a lack of faith. And then that, I mentioned that um, worship really is almost like an incubator. It can be an incubator for our faith. It can help grow our faith and cultivate our faith. And there was something in office when you and I were talking earlier this week that you said, um, you said that there is power in our wor- words far more than just what's on the screen. And I think that speaks to that, the importance of worship, the link of worship and faith. Can you, can you expand that? Maybe? Yeah, again, reiterating this point that it's not just words that we're just speaking without thinking. It's, it's engaging on the inside. So we honor God when our desires and our thoughts line up with the words that we're singing or we're saying. Um, so those thoughts, and, so when those thoughts and desires are not lined up, so you, it can become a prayer asking God for your hearts, your thoughts and your hearts to line up with who he is. So there's never a moment, even if there are words on the screen where it's talking about um, God, you're all that I want. You're all that I need. And you might be sitting there in your seat going, I, I'm, not, I'm not connecting with this. Your, your goal you can end in that moment is that you make it your prayer. Lord, I want to need you. God, I want to know you. And you know what? In those moments when we admit our, our need for him and we truly believe that, God meets us right where we're at. It's, it's, it's a great Great thing that even he knows that we're not going to always, our attitudes and our desires are not going to be always lined up. But that doesn't mean we have to, to be far away from God in those moments. And in, 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 in how we engage in worship, you know, we're all different people. Uh, things are going to look different. So participation level during worship is going to be different depending on who you are. We're all, um, we make up the body of Christ. So the body has different parts. And so we're all going to respond differently. Some, some are going to make no- more noise. Some are going to be quieter. But, but we all, the, the, the main thing is that we're expressing authentic true, genuine worship that is happening on the inside of us. So someone, for example, someone could be very exuberant. This could be dancing and lifting your hands, which is all allowed, all good. Um, but, if, but it's possible that your heart's not engaged. But yet, you can also see someone else who might not look like they're participating, but their heart's completely engaged. And so it, it can be um, not always a good reader, what, what someone might look like or what you might look like on the outside. Each one of us individually know where our hearts are at. That's true. Something when we were talking in office, and this goes right with about the heart issue in the matter, and we were talking about the Ten Commandments, which we said earlier. I had said something to you that I think went with this, but uh, in my mind went back to it as you're sharing. 
Um, in the Ten Commandments, one of them speaks to not using God's name in vain, not misspeaking his name. And it's easy, I think, from the Christian mindset to think, well, not using God's name in vain means not using it as a curse word, not attaching it with curse words, those type of things. Um, and I think there's truth in that. But it's easy for, a, if, if you don't have that in your language, which you shouldn't, if you don't have that in your language, um, it's very easy to think, well, check, I got that one covered. But as we spoke, we talked about the real heart behind that is, um, has less to do with God's name being used as a curse word and far more to do with casually using his name, casually throwing it around. And I think something I said to you was that, could it be that and out of an entire week, a seven-day week, the one space where God's name is misused the most, could it be on Sundays between 10 and 12 when it comes to our worship songs? Because perhaps our heart's not being engaged. Yeah. We're just casually mentioning and throwing around his name. So that heart piece is significant. It's Very huge. significant. It's huge. It's huge. Um, and that plays into our faith as well, just the growth of our faith. So let me ask you this. I appreciate all that you um, have shared. And um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Couple other, yeah, a couple other things. I want to share Psalm 145, verse 4. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts and let them proclaim your power. We, we have um, power in our words. That is, as we let God genuinely change us on the inside, that our words that we speak, when our words and our thoughts and our desires line up, there's power in what we speak. And, and that includes, as for our, those parents out there, that what we speak to our kids. And, and then it says right here, that is, as we tell this gener- we tell our children, and or, and or anyone you might be telling about God, and then as they get to hear it, they then proclaim your power. So Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but, being, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his returning is drawing near. So again, it's remembering that, that worship happens in all that we do, but it's really important to gather like this, in this setting, to encourage one another, to push each other on, and, and just generally love on each other. As Christ's love lives in us, that's going to, over, again, overflow from who we are, and it's going to be genuine, and it's, it's going to be Christ's work in us, and it's not going to be saying all the right words because I've grown up in church. I can say all the right things, but it's, it's again, it's deeper. It's about that heart, and, I, and if I want you to hear anything this morning, it's, it's your heart. That's so true. That's so true. Well, thank you. Thank you uh, just for speaking to worship. Thank you for challenging our hearts, and uh, I just appreciate uh, I appreciate you, the ministry you bring here, and um, and I think of you as the the worship arts pastor, the lead, the worship pastor. But it's easy to think about that as meaning, okay, he's the guy who does the worship, and we just tag along. You're the lead worshiper. Mm-hmm. We're all we're all a part of this worship, absolutely um, time together. And so I just, just thank you for all that you do, and thank you for sharing with us. And we're going to end to give opportunity to practice a little bit of what we just talked about. Yes, and we're going to have a couple of more songs of worship this morning. So thank you, Pastor. Yeah, Kyle. Thank, thank you for you. sharing. The worship team is going to begin to ready themselves. And I'd mentioned we're going to end with just a, a couple of more songs of worship. And I wanted to share with you um, one more psalm. I know Pastor Kyle had shared a, a psalm with you, but I wanted to read to you one more. And it's out of Psalm, Psalms 63, 
verses 4 and 5. And I would encourage you, it's not a long psalm, I would encourage you, um, while this topic is fresh on your mind, to read all of Psalm 63, perhaps at some point today. But Psalm 63, verses 4 and 5, says, I praise you as long as I live. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And the Psalm 63 goes on to just talk about how our lives are most at rest and most filled with peace when we are living a worshipful life before God and expressing our praise and thanksgiving to Him. And so when I read Psalm 63, 64, it says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. He says, I am most satisfied in, in my life when my life is filled with a desire to honor His presence. I am most satisfied in life when my life is filled with a desire to honor His presence. As Pastor Kyle said, we're all made to worship. It's just a matter of what will we worship. What do we worship? And as if we want to see our faith grow, we want to see our understanding and walking in the presence of Jesus grow more and more so that some of what even I think of Stephen Pitterly shared earlier about being able to see the miraculous take place through our lives so that Jesus is lifted up, it comes from a heart and a posture of worship. A heart that is just captured with his presence and a desire to know him more. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. As I mentioned, we are going to end with a couple of more uh, songs of worship, and then I'll come back and close and dismiss those who need to slip out.